Hello everybody and welcome to another Around the World in 80 Drinks uh, podcast with us, the Thinking Drinkers. It's a podcast, if you've not listened before, that should improve your liquid lives. We'll be tasting new and interesting drinks, taking you to new and interesting places. Hopefully, if you've listened before, you've got the drinks that we're going to be tasting later in this podcast. Uh, and if you stick around till the end, we'll tell you what we're going to be tasting in the next one. My name's Tom Sandham. I'm one of the Thinking Drinkers, and I'm joined, as ever, by my fellow Thinking Drinker, Ben McFarland. Ben, how are you doing? Oh, I'm very well, thank you, Tom. I'm doing okay. How are things with you, mate? They're all right. Yes, um, uh, we are still in lockdown at the time of yep. recording, so uh, so um, we're having the same old old problems. One uh, good thing that happened to me this week was the downstairs toilet light started working again. Um, yeah i mean it really is quite honestly my uh my four-year-old was doing a poo in that toilet and i turned the light on and uh, even he remarked on how amazing it is because in the winter it doesn't work because it's cold our our downstairs toilet's a bit of an add-on to the back of the house it's a bit like um the turtle's head of the of the house if you like and because it's cold i i assume the, the light doesn't ignite something Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Some sort you of You do realise we're hemorrhaging listeners, as you're telling <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah. But now it's summer, it works. So that's that was a big, big deal. That, Have you had just any... the timing when you don't need the light. Well, that's what I was, I was saying to my wife, exactly that. In the winter, you have to have the door open or the torch on your phone. Uh, in the summer, you can take it's a like a solar, solar-powered your... light. Brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, till nine o'clock you can see what your, your business. So, um, so yeah, it's not right the right time. It's not the right way around. Anything, any anything amazing happened to you during lockdown? Do you know what, Tom? There's not been a great deal that's happening. My end. Um, I fell off my bike. Ooh. That was bad, um, but in a comedy way because I've just everything about me is comedy. You see, Tom, <laughs> uh, Mister Comedy. Um, I was. Uh, because I've got uh, a racer bike, a road bike, and I've so got the whole cleats and proper shoes and lycra bullshit. And I'm, I'm, I am that middle-aged man in lycra mammal. And uh, uh, the more the tighter you have your shoes connected to the pedals, apparently the the more efficient the bike uh, your your cycling becomes. And I was going, I wasn't going much faster, so I just thought, right, I want to tighten these up. But the tighter you do them the harder it is to get out of the pedals. And so I was cycling along the road here and um, went down the side of some stationary traffic and uh, some a guy opened his door well well in front of me. Uh, so I stopped and then I couldn't get my left leg out of the pedal. So I just did a Yikes. timber to the left. It wasn't, I didn't hurt myself, but I've got a cut on my thumb. Which such a brave soldier. Oh, such a brave soldier. Um, <laughs> but it was really humiliating because even when I was on the floor, I still couldn't get the legs out. So I was like a turtle with a bike in the air. <laughs> and a mum from uh, my son's school was just happened to be coming out of the shop. Um, Yummy mummy? And, uh, or? Uh, well, I'm not going to say, because if she listens to this, she knows exactly who she is. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a very attractive uh, lady coming up to see you. She's, I'm trying she's to, lovely. Trying to get she's you. lovely. She's a lovely person, and um, yes, she helped you up. She she didn't even. She just looked at me uh, because also because <laughs> of the because of the uh, the social distancing, no one oh, can come and help you. I can't. So touch I just you. and then the guy came out of his car and said, "You all right?" And I went, 
no, you're right, mate. It was my fault. And you could see him going, you yeah, know, mate, oh, wasn't I was about <laughs> 10 metres away. Uh, so, yes, it was Ugh. a bit humiliating. So that's the most exciting. Slightly more interesting than your light escapade. But... I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, the kids were fascinated for a good 10 minutes. So anything that keeps them, them uh, happy. I've been watching more films and still cannot believe how many films have bar scenes. You'll like this one. I saw uh, Midnight Run again this week. Yeah. Uh, the Duke. They've got a great bar scene in it. Though. You know the litmus configuration test that Charles Grodin does on $20 notes? Do you remember that oh, part of the, the film? No, no. Really, yeah, I've... He cons, he cons a bar owner, it's a bar called Red's Corner Bar. He cons about $20 notes by, with, with De Niro. But Grodin, oh, my God, he's, he's, he's brilliant. He totally um, he steals the scene from, from I, De Niro. It's one of the best, I think it's one of De Niro's best films. Yes. Because I, I, I watched Heat. Yeah, that, I was watching that, yeah. Uh, I think it's, I don't think it's as good as everyone says. I just, especially Pacino, he just shouts. Stop yeah. shouting. Yeah, uh, and also I can't think. Oh, there must be a bar scene in that. I'll give it another go and see if there is the bar in the bar in. Um, but you go back and look at Midnight Run again for the bar scene because the one they're in is um, it's in a place called Williams, Arizona, which is about half an hour from Flagstaff, where I studied at Northern Arizona University. So we went through Williams. It's on Route sixty six on the way to Vegas, uh, and the bar they they film that scene in is called Pancho. McGilly Cuddies. <laughs> it's an Irish bar. Pancho, Pancho, McGilly Cuddies. Um, but they had a massive shuffleboard in oh. the middle of the bar. So have a look at it again. It's almost to the point of obstructing any other business, this shuffleboard. And I just thought, God, I'd, I'd love to be there. Such right a now. good game, listeners. If you've never played shuffleboard and you will not be playing it during lockdown because no one can get that large board into their house it's all only in pubs but as soon as they open get down and get get into shuffleboard it will improve your life no end yeah um so let's uh let's get on with something to drink yeah come on then. Uh, what, are we going to go with uh yours first this week are you gonna yeah yeah, yeah it's all about what me. are we tasting well we are tasting truly one of the few beers that have genuinely changed the world of brewing and um and it's rather apt because it's celebrating its 40th anniversary uh, which makes means it was created in what year, Tom? Forty years ago. <laughs> I don't. Nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty, when the American brewing landscape, as an American beer, was a desolate, dystopian desert. Um, back in America, uh, back then there were just forty Big Brother Big Brewers in America. Uh, when you consider that London now is more than a hundred breweries, that gives you an idea how dismal it was for drinkers out there. Worse still, these brewers weren't making any interesting beer. They were numbing the nation's palates with sort of, you know, tasteless tumbleweed, light lagers. There was nothing really going on. But on the West Coast, a brewing backlash was gathering pace as part of a, of a, of a wider movement against the kind of shrink wrap monotony of modern American food and, and drink. And at the time, there was increasing unease over just loads of different stuff, but mainly the environmental impact of big business. There have been food scares uh, throughout the late 70s, early 80s, and there was a growing general disenchantment with the corporate America. They were moving away from the post-war sort of um, TV meals and things like that. And California was leading the charge in this kind of backlash and spreading the local is good message. Um 
1971, the Shea Panisse restaurant opened in Berkeley, where there's a legendary chef, Alice Waters, who really encouraged the widespread embrace of local sustainable food. Um, I'm coming. I'm going to tell you what the beer is in a second, but this is all. This is all designed, designed to create tension and wonder what we're going to taste. Even though I'm shooting myself. Okay, well, don't do that. Not the laughter. Boutique, um, as, well, as well as you know, this this local sustainable food movement. There's boutique wineries are cropping up on the Pacific coast, and in the Napa Valley region especially. And beer wasn't that far behind. Now there were three m- main brewing pioneers in California. Three guys that are doing really pioneering stuff the first was a guy called jack mcauliffe who in 1976 he was a uh, american soldier station stationed in scotland came back from there having tasted loads of nice beer um set up america's first microbrewery since prohibition in this hippie northern californian backwater of Son- sonoma yeah that's how you say it isn't it yeah um sonoma. sonoma we've been there when we wrote a book about this at the same time there was a chip chap called uh, fritz maytag uh, and he did. He breathed life back into Anchor Steam Brewing. It was a knackered old brewery that wasn't making very good beer, and he turned it around. He cleaned it up, didn't he? Cleaned he it up did. like his washing machines. I yeah, he was, he was very good. Tom. He was yeah. he was from a washing machine magnate family, um, so he was a bit of a trustafarian. But um, they gave. But he did some amazing thing with Anchor Steam, and uh, we'll be tasting that in a later pod. And then there was a man called Ken Grossman. Oh, Ken. Who had been introduced to homebrewing back in the 1960s by the dad of one of his best mates from primary school. Now, he started brewing in the summer of 69. Lovely, good song. That's a Brian Adams song. Summer of 69. Apparently, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's supposed takes. to be. No, no, it is. Apparently, it, no, is. it is. That's the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Do you know what the, call, the bingo call is for 69? Um, no. Mail for two. Terrible view. Yeah. And that's from, uh, we got that from Barry from Watford who told us that. Um, anyway, 1970. So Grossman, 1972, he moved to Chico, a town called Chico, Northern California, a wonderful place where he was studying chemistry. And in 1976, he opened up a homebrew store, bringing in malts from Europe and going up to Yakima, which is a big hot country in the Pacific Northwest. And he picked fresh hops, American hops. At the time, homebrewing was illegal. So, you can imagine running a homebrewing shop was a bit of a tough business to make work and to make ends meet. Uh, and he had a first child on the way. He worked a second job as a bike mechanic. Mm. Now he became buddies with Maytag and McAuliffe and set up a brewery in 1980 called Sierra Nevada. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, that well, was, I don't know. That is what we're drinking. Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, first brewed on a 10-barrel brew house, which he cobbled together using dairy equipment. Uh, loads of, just loads of bits and bobs. He built the whole thing himself, welded it, plumbed it, put electricals in, the whole shebang. And his first beer was this, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, the beer that really, truly kick-started the American craft brewing revolution. And it's an English beer style, Pale Ale, but it's designed to proudly showcase wonderfully aromatic american hops and specifically in this case in this case the cascade hop which was first released in 1972 now the cascade hop is my favorite hop that i know, <laughs> I mean, I know. what's your second favorite uh, citra a... now you ask actually uh, Third, uh, let's not go I into the puggles Oh, you got uh, your, oh, you got your Goldings. You got, no, you got your Goldings. Um, 
of course you've got your aromatic hops. You've got my favourite hop is my Cascade. No, if anyone wants to know my top 100 favourite hops, just email me, ben at thinkingdrinkers.com, and we can chat hops. Yeah. <laughs> Can't paste from the internet. No, um, it really is my favourite hop. Uh, and amongst all the beer geeks, it's sort of seen as a little bit passe. But uh, it's lovely. It's floral. It's lovely and citrusy. And it's got a really distinctive, great grapefruit character. So I think it's, um, worth, I think it's worth putting it out there at this stage that, um, that we we tried a lot, you know, over 500 different beers when we did our two months travelling around America. And there have been many since. I still go full allegiances out there. I still go back to Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. I do think yeah. it is... I mean, whilst I was doing some research for this, and I believe it or not, there was some research, um, I'd just forgotten how good it is. Mm. It's so good. Um, but at the time, it was really ballsy to bring out a beer like this because, uh, as, as I've mentioned, it was, America was a land of lackluster lager and the sort of fresh citrus flavours from, from the Cascade Hop just totally blew the minds of beer drinkers back then. Uh, and it wasn't an easy kind of mainstream sell. Um, and when Ken first started brewing it, he used to collect hops and malts, and he had a wicked flatbed 57 Chevy truck, um, which if you look up on the uh, on the Googles, you'll see it's really very cool. And he used to, he used to pick up all the ingredients in that, brew, brew with the ingredients, and then put all the beer on the truck and drive it around bars trying to sell it. Now, the big, big, big breakthrough came um, – when they got the, the, this pale ale into Chez Panisse, that that groundbreaking restaurant. Uh, and over the next few years, they grew gradually, getting traction in the more liberal, sort of left-leaning pockets of the West Coast. And also, interestingly, in Cal- Colorado, mm-hmm. um, which is another sort of slightly hippie-ish part of America, especially in Boulder, where, did you know, Tom, they consume more tofu than any other town in America? I did not know what they're into. Mm. I got up in there. It's uh, very nice. Um, um, But also helped having a serious college party town on the doorstep. Now, um, in 1983, the buyer for one of America's biggest supermarkets visited his his daughter who was studying in Chico. And he, uh, he tried the local beer, liked it so much that he put it into the supermarkets. And that was massive for them. Um, now, Sierra Nevada cannot overestimate the influence of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale on the whole American craft brewing revolution. There were six breweries that opened between 78 and 82, and Sierra Nevada is the only one still standing. It now brews a million barrels a year. It's the third biggest craft brew in the U.S., and Ken Grossman still owns it. That's he's, amazing. He's properly independent. He has not changed the way he's done any, done things in terms of – He's probably changed it. He, he changed it for the better – uh, he's a, a he's, yeah. He's he's a billionaire, and he. Um, I was reading an interview with him the other day, and he said, "I didn't get into the business to try and make a ton of money, and I've made enough money that I'm totally comfortable and don't want for anything." Oh, I'll tell wow. you what I want. You want to do, Ken? I'll tell you what you want to do. You want to sponsor this podcast? Um, oh, you've been shouting about your beer for about twenty years, yeah. And I think you owe us. Um, anyway. He is. He's proven what's been brilliant about Ken is that he's proven that you can grow to being really massive without compromise, mm. and he attributes his success and uh, to just quality and consistency. 
Uh, and we've been to the brewery. We went, we went when we re- researched the book back in 2007. And what you really struck struck us was the brewery in Chico is so clean. I mean, clean. literally, so everything is clean. I remember that's, we where, all, that's where all the sanitizer and antibacterial was. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus, man, there's nothing going. There's no virus there. Chico. In fact, they've um, they've dedicated that. They've handed over their labs to. Um, I'll come on to labs in a bit, but they're, they're to, to the local fight against COVID. But he I remember him saying, because we at the time were thinking about opening a brewery and we asked him what the most important thing to do uh, as a brewer. And he just said, uh, you just got to clean, 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 make sure everything is clean. And I, look, I remember looking at you going, that's not our strong, that's not our strong point. <laughs> so I was picking my nose in the corner. Yeah. No, not us then. Yeah. With uh, scratching my athlete's foot underneath the desk. <laughs> um so um yeah so uh he's he's he, i mean he's amazing quality they've 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 he's quite a difficult interview do you remember he was quite uh he's i mean very very I think, uh, yeah i think he, he was but to be fair to him you know a couple of limeys just bowling in uh looking as we did quite young and uh neither of us with particular like the garms of the the beer geek there weren't no. sandals, didn't have a big big tummy. It could we could have easily been taken for chances, especially based on what happened to us subsequently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get on to that. But he 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 really got excited excited and opened up when he took us around the brewery and showed us all the gadgets. Because they what they've done amazingly is that uh, they've invested in all like scientific analysis and research. The laboratory is extraordinary. It's manned, if you remember, by actual white-coated boffins with mm. clipboards and stuff. And um, and they use loads of gadgets more readily associated with the, with, with the perfume industry. Um, and uh, at the centre of everything they do is it's very environmentally friendly as well. They were also groundbreakers when it came to keeping things green and eco-friendly. The entire brewery is powered by solar energy, 10,000 panels covering its rooftops. They use a cook- cooking oil from the restaurants to drive their trucks. They use ultraviolet light to clean the water. Um, and it's even bought the local railway so they can transport all the grain and hops from the brewery to the uh, from the fields to the brewery and stuff like that. So, um, I mean, to be honest, the beer is so good. I don't, I wouldn't give a shit if they were burning car tires behind the brewery every day. I'd still buy it. Um, but it, it does help the fact that they are environmentally friendly. So, um, can we taste uh, some? Yes, I'm very sorry. Uh, um, I mean, I've been drinking it, but just oh, if no, the so listeners there, I'm tempted. It's just well, waiting. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping that they've um, been tasting it anyway. I'm just. I'm just uh, pouring into a glass. But yes. Um, God, that's that's a wonderful beer. It's just. Oh, it's just so. It just takes me back to Chico, Ben. Top ten yes. in the top ten college party towns of Playboy magazine, consistently it's, for about ten years. I think wasn't it? Yeah, it's an amazing place. Um, it's full of sort of. Uh, hippies, acid casualties, but more importantly than that, it's a massive college town. It's like when we drove in in, in our in our crap hire car, it was like a, a scene from Animal House. We just drive, we were driving down that road, and could we have a Chrysler, Chrysler Cruiser or something? Yeah, it was a. And every time you looked, it went. Ah! It was <laughs> such an annoying car. Yeah, but still. 
people. It was a bit like the the films you see in Hollywood, where all the all the students are stood on roofs, and there's, someone's got massive speakers out in the garden, and it mm. was just going off, wasn't it? Every other house was like a, a party house. It was amazing. And we arrived there on a Tuesday, which went. Uh, and when we went out in Chico, um, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was a was a dollar. Mm. The bucket beer night in all the bars, and it was—I think it was fifty cents for a tequila. Yeah. So um, by the time, by the time <laughs> that well, I remember, yeah. <laughs> uh, but luckily, we'd seen Ken before we went out that night. We hadn't visited the second brewery though, had we? That came the less, less famous brewery of Chico, which oh man, what's it called? I think it's called Chico Brewery. Mm, it was um, a bad one. Yeah, so uh, we were in a very, very sorry state. I think you were sick, weren't you? I had you to be sick, sick on that brewery tour. I had to say, is that a toilet over there? <laughs> oh, I'm just going to check out what your toilets are like in the brewery. Drink less, drink better, folks. Drink less, drink better. We were young and it was quite stressful. But um, but Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, if you haven't had it, um, do have it because it's absolutely brilliant and if you speak to any brewer, it will be, I reckon, any modern craft brewer will put it in their top three or four beers. Mm-hmm. And all the sort of the slightly hoppy American-style pale ales and IPAs that have emerged over the last few years have all been inspired by uh, what Ken Grossman did. I mean, it really is a fantastic example of how to run a brewery, how to place the beer at the forefront of what you do that this pale ale i've never had a bad pint of it even though it's they, they used to transport it over to the uk in chilled um boats i mean they've just they've done all the right things and they were the first along with anchor and brooklyn to a certain extent the first american breweries to really open up into the uk and for for a long time they were the, only those are the three craft beers you could get from america so um being able to drink them but they're very expensive and when they first arrived so being going to chico and having them for one dollar a night it was no wonder we got excited and overdid it but mm. um they're 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 widely available now you can get them in waitrose i think it's a fantastic fantastic beer and i would have it as my desert island beer i think me too i'd have um, it i'd have it with what i'm going to taste i'd have it with um are we going where what are we doing now we're going, to go, we're going to introduce the listeners to tequila, but I'd have a, a beer with a, a small measure of tequila or American whiskey. Much uh, like that night in Chico. Yeah. Well, yeah, the tequila is more appropriate for what we're moving into. But, we are, yeah, we're going back to Mexico. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll bring us on to the next thing we're going to taste. And uh, if you've been good boys and girls listeners, then you should have some Ocho Blanco by your side. And I suggest that you actually pour some now. And if you pour it into your glass and give it a gentle smell, small sniffs, and Ben, that for me, that is the smell of Mexico. When I smell good quality agave spirits, good tequila, 100% agave, that is Mexico, a pretty <clears throat> non-narcotic part of Mexico. Mm. Um, it's to, When you get good tequila, it's something to really enjoy. And in uh, the 20 years... Plus, we've been working in the booze industry. I think it's fair to say that tequila has been one of our toughest selves to people, especially in our shows. Audiences are always, they recoil a bit, don't they, when we say we're going to be tasting tequila. And that's largely because in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of truly crap tequila. People were slamming it, lasting at night after a skin full of 
cack lager or or a bottle of wine so they were subsequently vomiting it all over the dance floor or wherever they were immediately and tequila always gets the blame for that but it wasn't tequila's fault it's always really been the straw that that breaks the back of your evening it's it's what you had you you were finishing with that you were going to be sick anyway but because of that people associate that re- that response yeah. you know, <laughs> knee jerk reaction to it yeah you were going to be sick anyway so don't blame the kid but but you're right there's there's a the misconceptions are ridiculous I and mean, everyone sort of says well uh i don't drink tequila because it always makes you sick but the, the fact is that people only drank tequila on occasions where they'd already drunk to excess yeah they were going to um, be sick so. And they say, oh, it makes me go crazy. Well, yeah. if you drank one whilst watching, you know, Antique Roadshow, I don't think it would. No. Don't um, blame the drink. Blame the behaviour. Exactly. Drink less, drink better. But we have seen a bit of a shift in recent years. Mexico has become a bit stricter and regulated on production. As a result, we've seen a lot of quality 100% agave spirit arriving here. And if you're buying tequila, look for 100% agave on the bottle. Uh, it is fair to say that we were drinking a lot of bad tequila in the 80s, mixed-o tequilas. So that means they, they can't say they're 100% agave. They've used a lot of cheap sugar-based distillate to bulk it up. So in cities, you might see, if you live in places like Liverpool or Manchester or Edinburgh, great tequila bars, uh, agar- agave spirits bars, because Mezcal is another agave spirit that's doing very well at the moment. We would drink in Stu McCluskey's El Cartel in Edinburgh, Ben, wouldn't we, when yeah. we were doing our show there? God, oh, I can't wait to get back to Edinburgh hopefully next year to do the show and his El Cartel bar across the road. So it's great food and frozen margaritas. So there's a lot of uh, tequila love. And and really, if you think you don't like it, it's probably time to to reassess. One of the other reasons we love the spirit is its history, which we've talked a a bit about in our shows and in our book, Thinking Drinkers book, which is uh, available on Amazon right now. Um, And we can trace it all the way back to the Aztec times, which was ages ago. Uh, they 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 revered the agave <laughs> plant in the Aztecs. How long ago was it? Ages, mate. Right. Are, they, are you going to be more specific? <laughs> I can't. It was ages ago. They had a different calendar, um, but they 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 used the agave plant for loads of things. It was massively important to their culture: rope and clothes and and sneakers. But more importantly, they drank it and they cooked the agave up and they crushed it and they got the sugary juice out and it would naturally ferment. And they drink this and they call it pulque. So it's a bit like an agave beer. And they drink that and then they'd be able to talk to their gods um, and have a, a generally have a wicked time. And uh, they worship lots of different gods. And one of the gods was Maya Hall, an oh, amazing yeah. woman. Lovely girl. We love, we love Maya Hall. She was the Aztec goddess of fertility, proper top banana lady. And uh, you can read all about her in our book. But the thing we should probably stress, Ben, I, I think, is, is that Maya Hall had four... Hundred breasts more Indeed. than most. <laughs> well, three hundred ninety-eight more than most. Um, uh, she had a lot of breasts. She also had four hundred children, but her children were rabbits, uh, and she represented the 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 agave plant to the Aztec people. The rabbits represented different states of intoxication. So, gods of a hangover, god of dancing drunks they they all all 400 have a different reason for being drunk and they would suck on her boobies and um the boobies each of her nipples would dispense the pulque so um and is that why be- tom is that why when you drink tequila people say that'll put hairs on your chest 
No, Ben, it's not. Uh, but I was thinking about this the other day. It probably does give new perspective to anyone claiming that in lockdown their kids are really getting on their tits. I'd say 400 actual nippers with with sharp teeth. Uh, that's some serious latching issues you've got going on there if you've just had a child. So, you know, spare a thought for my whole. Anyway, the Con- conquistadors, they invaded. They had Bradley making distillation kits. So they took the pool cake beer and they turned it into tequila the first incarnations of tequila so history stories like that are one of the reasons we love it uh, more recently though hundreds of years later thousands maybe ben <laughs> don't know it was ages ago <laughs> um but we went to mexico didn't we ben uh, we did visit tequila tequila is an actual town in mexico and we went with ocho which is why we're having ocho today because we really did it properly we stayed in guadalajara uh guadalajara. Is- no 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 go on then say it you've got to say guadalajara without saying any of the consonants after the g so you've got to go guadalajara guadalajara uh, we went to, uh, we stayed in Guawawawa and um, had a great night out there. We visited some bars, uh, places like Cantina La Fuente, uh, which is in the historic centre of Guadalajara. When the lockdown's done, go to Guadalajara. They've got amazing bars like uh, Cantina La Fuente, proper authentic old style bar, old boys sitting around sipping proper tequila. They don't slam it out there because that's something marketing boys have told you to do with lime. No one does that out there. They just sip it and uh, and chat. Uh, they're really, really great places. And we visited Tequila Town, and uh, it's an actual town. It's a short drive from Guadalajara. Little town, worth a, a day out, though. You can um, tour some of the distilleries there. They've got a pretty historic square. The sun, as you'd expect, is always shining out there. It's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful holiday. Um, and uh, other producers, including Fortaleza. They're based in Tequila Town. After you've had the Ocho, try Fortaleza Tequila because that is one of the great luxury tequilas. We toured the distillery there and, uh, and met the owner. I didn't. When... <laughs> well, no, Ben didn't. Uh, I think Ben was on a bench outside with uh, two of the other people who were on our trip. I think it was Herb, was it, and the cameraman, Ben? <laughs> and you no, was no, like, I, no, I was on my own because I was I oh. got food poisoning. And it was it genuinely was food poisoning, and I had to like lie on this bench. And they had a distillery dog that every time I finally drifted off on this really uncomfortable bench, he'd come, come over and just lick my face. <laughs> now I was then I'd lean over, be sick again, and then yeah. I mean it was, it was really. I mean, may I just may I just confirm that this has nothing to do with the tequila? I ate some dodgy rice, I think. No, right. Well, we should say, listeners, when we arrived in Guadalajara, wow. uh, we, we dumped all our luggage and headed straight out. The first stop was a street food vendor for tacos, and twenty four hours later, Ben has the shits. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> it. I mean, you got proper Hershey's as well, weren't they? They were really. Relentless, relentless pooing. How did it you describe like, it? What did you say? Bats out of a clock tower. It was. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, yes. yeah. But the bats bring us back to Ocho uh, because we also visited, yes, well, they will stay with me. But we visited okay. the Ocho Distillery, which is um, it's produced at La Altena Distillery, run by the famous distiller Carlos Camarena. And this dude is like the the business. He is the he's the main man in the world of tequila. He's respected because he uses old school artisanal methods with a bit of modern innovation thrown in there as well. So he's one of the few tequila producers who ferments with wild yeast in open tanks. He 
bakes his agave in brick uh, hornods or, or, or ovens. Um, and after cooking them, he crushes them with a tahona stone and rollers. So it's all like big, massive volcanic rocks that he uses to crush the agaves to get the sugary spirits, sugary um, liquid out. So he's using copper parts. We went, didn't we, Ben? It's fair to say it, it was a real deal. I mean, he's using... Yeah, yeah, no, it was, I mean, it's it's almost too artisan. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, everything well, yeah. they do, you're like, I think you could do this more efficiently in another way. To be fair, Carlos does use a bit of a bit of modern stuff as well in there, um, and he created this tequila with a guy called Thomas Estes, who's a tequila ambassador for the Mexican government. He's a really big deal in the bar industry. He also owns Cafe Pacifico in London. So again, hope Cafe Pacifico gets through this lockdown spell, and when it does, go there and see the amazing tequilas they've got on offer. Um, but they approached Ocho with a view to looking at terroir which is a, a, a word we tend to apply to wine. But it was their assertion that if you take agaves from different fields at different uh, altitudes with different soil, it would affect the tequila flavours that you get at the end. So they went for this single estate tequila approach um, and taking them from Carlos's epic agave fields, one estate or rancho at a time. Um, and so what he was trying to do was, I guess, mimic the wine industry, something a bit like a Bordeaux. He was saying that these these influences, the environment, can affect the flavour we have today. Now, we have a Blanco today, which is mm-hmm. an introduction to, to tequila that is going to be challenging for some people. But really, you should start here because this is the sort of essence, the first expression of the tequila that will get you started. But at the distillery... There are uh, incredible Ocho Reposados, Añecos, Extra Añecos. And when we were there, we we tasted lots of different tequila from the different ranchos. And it's fair to say, Ben, wouldn't you say, that we could actually taste oh, subtle no. differences between them. So, Well, then they're not even that subtle. The differences are, are, are very marked, I, I found. Mm. Um, and what you really notice when you're comparing them is is the floral nature of them i I think it's with the british mindset it's very difficult to initially get beyond that what tequila sort of sparks off in your your sort of british brain Mm. um but then when you're in mexico like all these things you 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 adopt a different perspective on it and that and that when we're tasting the different ones it, it really you just realize what complex spirit it can be yeah and that agave, the agave is a big part of that. I, I think people tend to st- still think that it's a cactus. It actually comes from the asparagus uh, family. And, and the way they cultivate it is a big part of, of the story. And, and Carlos is very passionate about his agave plants. But it's, it's an amazing, you get, get out there, you see them picking them by hand and Himodor's cutting them. And, it, and you realise how much work goes into seven or eight years of growing this one plant to then crush and turn into start turning into tequila. And the plant itself deserves a lot of respect it sort of shuts down during the day when it's really hot and then comes to life at night and can survive these really dry arid conditions in mexico in fact it's been explored by scientists who think that genetic mapping could be copied in in other grain crops making them a bit more durable in countries suffering from climate driven famine and the like ah. so so it's a very it is very i mean to go back to those so those bats um they have to stop the pollination in the agave to get the, the the most sugar out of it. So they cut this stalk off before it flowers. But that isn't necessarily ideal for sustainability for the agave plants. And pollination is pretty important when it comes to fighting off blights and getting diversity in the agaves. So they essentially cloned them. 
But Carlos Camarena actually said, well, this is not great for the future of the agave. So he gives a big part of his own crop uh, over to natural pollination. So he allows the plant to expire, to die through the flowering process, uh, which is important for the natural cycle. And, and then he lets them naturally pollinate. But who pollinates them? You might ask me, is it, is it Mexican bees? Is it Jose or no. Jose bees? Jose, no. Jose, yeah, good. No, it's not. Um, no. It's, it's not. You should know this. You were there. Bats. It's I know. Bats. I, 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 I wasn't sure whether you were going to set say. me up there. No, they are. It's bats. Yeah. And, uh, and, and bats are going through a bit of a bad. They are. Bad bad time they're bad pr at the moment aren't they they are i mean they are spreading something else these days but they would help spread they would pollinate uh the the agaves naturally so rest assured no one is eating the uh, bats no, don't eat bats in mexico they're very important to help sustain the diversity so carlos he cares about his agave and he cares about his tequila so if you've got it now have that smell again and hopefully now i've said all of that the history and the beautiful thing about the agave you can get the smell on it which is the agave it's slightly vegetal it's promising something slightly sweeter uh, there's a bit of honey in there but also a tiny fresh bit of mint in there as well and that's all coming from the agave one of the spirits that really showcases the the ingredient that's at the heart of it now take a sip of it a sip uh, no one slams it in mexico so take a sip and you'll notice that it's actually quite smooth it's sweet uh, it's not making you gag because you haven't poured 10 pints of shit lager down your, your neck. Sip it. And you can see why people would have citrus with it. It's got that tight, slightly hint, it's a bit of hint of, of citrus in there as well. But that agave is really there and it is very easy to drink. So approach it like this. Uh, appreciate the agave and hopefully it can get you past that that psychology that you think it will make you sick and this one is on the whiskey exchange uh 50 cl bottles so slightly smaller but you can get there uh get to the whiskey exchange and find the blanco for 22 pounds 45 so i think this is a great way to get people back into tequila absolutely i mean i the agave plant we actually when we went out there we tried to harvest it didn't we and we um because they have these guys called himidors which you've mentioned who are employed to cut these cut the big spiky leaves off the agave and it creates something that looks a bit like a pineapple, uh, but a massive pineapple. And we they gave us uh, the the tools to do it, uh, and we hacked away at it, and it looked like a <laughs> looked like when I tried to give my son a haircut, it was really patchy and awful. <laughs> and then just because I was feeling quite manly, I decided to pick one up and hold it above my head and and then it was so heavy i had to sort of press hold it in my arms and carlos i remember shaking his head at me going don't do that <laughs> they've got these kind of weird sort of uh toxins that come out on my skin and i just as well as having the absolute earth of kits i also had a terrible rash all over my chest and arms do you remember yeah. that and then uh, i do remember that um and we can blame it on some some rice and an agave plant not decisions on drinking and establishments yeah. you frequented <laughs> yeah but it's one of the other things we saw in guadalajara was the wrestling which um another thing to do if, to tick off the tourist box if oh, you go man, to funny. that was funny they did include a a a small person a midget in in the wrestling can you say that? I don't know if you can say that to I'm him. not sure. I think they're called little people. They're little. little people. But he was in. He was into it. He was pretty good. Oh yeah, no, he was great. He was kicking ass. 
But he did get chucked out of the ring, which was... They flung him, they flung him like a doll out of the ring, and he landed on some chairs, which <laughs> um, is bang out of order. But yeah. it's very difficult not to laugh when you see it live. Yeah. <laughs> we're, 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 we're going down areas of political yeah, 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 not really... Yeah. We shouldn't no. be navigating, but it was like stop, so that's, stop doing that, Mexico. Yeah, that's uh, but but do keep making your tequila and listeners get back involved with tequila, get it back in your life. So that's uh, the tequila. So that's twenty two pound forty five from Whiskey Exchange. Ben, your beer, just to recap. My beer is Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, lovely citrusy beer, got beautiful balance to it. The archetypal burger beer as well. If you're having a barbie, Sierra Nevada is. It, it's absolutely brilliant. Chef's kiss for that one. And that's £1.70 from Waitrose, which yeah. is incredible. Incredible and value. And next really. week, what are you going to be tasting? Well, we are we we're parking the um uh we're parking the uh the beers and the spirits, aren't we, next week? And we are instead going for a wine and we've got a very special guest called Marcel Lucon, mm. who's going to be joining us. So yes. we'll be taste. We'll be tasting. I've got I've got some um, Pocho Johnny Foreigner Passenger Brute Reserve non vintage, and that goes uh, for twenty eight pounds fifty in Waitrose. So get a bottle of the Passenger Brute Reserve uh, non vintage. And what have you got? It's Jenkins Place Blanc de Blanc, and uh, I'll put all the details uh, uh, below the below the podcast where you can okay. buy it and how much it costs. Brilliant. And below the podcast is an opportunity for you to leave nice reviews. Please do that. Please follow us on social at Thinking Drinks on Twitter, Thinking Drinkers on Facebook and Instagram. Say nice things if you enjoyed it. So don't bother if you didn't. Spread the word, not the virus. The virus. Uh, and tune, yes, not the virus. And, uh, and tune in next week for more drinking fun. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.